Our sermon passage this morning is John 19, as I mentioned earlier, verses 17 through 42. If you don't have a Bible, there's one provided for you underneath the uh, chair in front of you. You'll see uh, around you some hardback black books there. Those are the Bibles. Um, You can open a Bible app if you prefer. We'll also have the words on the screen. But I've titled this message today, The Cross, God's Terrible, Wonderful Plan. God's terrible, wonderful plan. Let's look together at John 19. I'm going to ask if you're able to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. And attentiveness to his voice. I'm beginning actually the last phrase of verse 16 and then continuing 17 through the end of the chapter. Listen to the word of the Lord. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier. Also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. 
After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you now as always for your word, that it is true and living and that you have something to say to us corporately and individually in it. And we have hearts open to receive and ears to hear. Would you speak, Lord, your word by your spirit, through your servant, to your people, for your glory. This is all yours, Lord. So would you move me out of the way and use my voice as your instrument today? For Christ's sake, amen. And you may be seated. Well, it occurred to me, just in preparing this week, that if it's true that familiarity breeds contempt, as the saying goes, then there's a risk we would develop some sense of contempt for passages like this one in the scripture that are just so very familiar to us. God forbid that that would be true. That's hard to even say that that might be true, right? But that we would, we would become, we think, so familiar with passages like the crucifixion that we would get bored with them. And that we would think, I already know that. Let's move on to other things. And it's not only true among us in our contemporary setting, it was really true in the first century. Uh, Paul said in uh, 1 Corinthians that the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we pre preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. He said, I... I decided that among you, I wouldn't know anything other than Christ crucified. It is central to who we are as Christians, to the gospel. There's a reason why, as I've said before, the cross is big and central in our sanctuary. That when you walk in, if you weren't paying attention at all, which I, by the way, am quite capable of doing in any given room that I walk in. There's all kinds of things I might not notice. I think it would be hard not to notice the cross in this sanctuary as large and central. And it deserves to be. Because the message of the cross is really central to the gospel and inseparable too from the resurrection, which uh, we'll hear about next week. And in fact, I'll, I'll mention sort of as a footnote, I'll be out the next couple of weeks um, uh, with a missions team related trip to London. And so uh, Steve Curtis will be preaching next week on the resurrection and Brian Slater the following week. And I know you'll look forward to hearing from them. 
But today, again, we come to the crucifixion, and for the last few weeks, we've been reading about the, the, the devious, shameful, uh, gruesome, and torturous, abusive actions that led up to the crucifixion of Jesus. The crucifixion itself was even worse in terms of the torture associated with it and, and the humiliation associated with it, which his mother watched. That could be a message of its own. There's a lot here that I will, I will hardly even touch this morning, and that'll be one of them. But when you talk about people who suffer along with those who suffer, it is painful to watch. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being a mother who said early in Jesus' ministry, whatever he says, listen to him. Do you remember the wedding of Cana uh, right there in John chapter 2? Whatever he says, listen to him. And to, and to know something about him that few, if any others, knew Although there was a lot she didn't even understand at that point. But then to have to watch him be treated this way is hard to even fathom. But there it was, gruesome and humiliating as he's stripped, mocked, and just made a public spectacle. But as terrible as it was, as terrible as it was, it was part of God's wonderful plan. We have a hard time making room in our mind for such things to coexist. Something so terrible and so wonderful at the same time. But let me remind you of how Peter explained this occasion on the day of Pentecost. The fact that it was part of God's wonderful plan. He said in Acts chapter 2 verses 22 and 23. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That is a bold message Peter preached there, but a true one and a, and a confounding one. In a sense, because he is saying here that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It wasn't just that God knew it was going to happen. That God worked things together in order for that to come to pass. But in such a way that God did not uh, cause those evil men to be evil. He did not trick them. He didn't entrap them. He didn't, he didn't make them all of a sudden turn evil and crucify Jesus. Their voluntary, voluntary terrible needs, or deeds rather, accomplished God's plan. The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And by that, he says, you crucified him and killed it. He was the man God had prophesied or, or told you about through the prophets he told you who he was, what he was going to do, how you would know him when you saw him. And then he appeared before you and, and was attested to you by wonders and miracles and signs, which you yourselves know, but you crucified him. It was 
God's wonderful plan. It was their terrible deeds that brought them to death. And all of that working for our good. That through him we might be brought to God through Christ. And that really, I would say, this, this idea of this being God's plan being worked out on the cross is really the primary thrust of John's report of the crucifixion. We get from four uh, gospel writers different details and perspectives on, on the, really the whole story of Jesus' life and ministry, but on the crucifixion specifically. There are different details shared by each one. And there, there, there are reasons for that, and it has to do with the reasons even why they wrote their gospels. John, though, uh, wants to communicate this uh, fact, this detail that God is working out his plan on the cross. And let me remind you one more time of John's purpose in writing his gospel. I've drawn our attention to this a couple of times, two or three times as we've uh, gone through this study. But John at the end of chapter 20 says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that the believing you may have life in his name. I could have told you lots of other things. I'm telling you the ones I'm telling you so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and the believing you may have life in his name. He has chosen then the details um, about the crucifixion that he selected by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in order to increase our faith. He's chosen these purposely. And, and what, what you'll notice is um, that the, the meat of the message here um, is describing how these events were really part of God's plan. He, he does sort of the, the, the bread on the sandwich, so to speak, is he, he opens up with a description of the setting of the crucifixion itself there at Golgotha. He's uh, crucified between two others with an inscription on the cross and so forth. And then at the end, uh, a little bit about the setting of his burial, it being nearby in a, uh, a new tomb in the garden uh, that Joseph of Arimathea took him and laid him in, etc. So it, it sort of bookends this with the setting there of his crucifixion and burial. But the meat of it is about details that reveal that God's plan was unfolding. Even the indignities of the cross happened just the way God said it would. So I want to take a quick look this morning at four prophecies fulfilled at the cross. And they're right here. You uh, probably noticed all of them as we were reading through it, uh, or you have noticed them in times past. But number one, we're told here that soldiers cast lots for his garments. He's included this detail. This this is from Psalm 22, verses 16 through 18, where it says, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. There were four soldiers here, as we uh, read about here, that 
They divided four of Jesus' garments among themselves. I mean, this was, you know, apparently a common practice there at crucifixions. It was uh, the idea being, I suppose, with this, uh, number one, we're going to put this person to shame by stripping them bare. But number two, they don't have need for these clothes where they're going, and so we'll take them there of some value, and they make use of them, however that might be. Four garments divided among four soldiers, and then the fifth item was the tunic, his undergarment, which it says here was, was woven in one piece from top to bottom. There was no seam in it. That actually made it of uh, some value. And so rather than tearing it and rendering it worthless, to the four of them, just to cut it up into four pieces or whatever. They cast lots to determine which one of them is going to get it. They have no idea that they're fulfilling part of God's plan and doing it. John has an idea, and that's the reason he tells us that. That these otherwise seemingly haphazard events, and even ones that contribute to the mockery and humiliation of Jesus... Or fulfilling God's plan. The second thing we're told is that Jesus drank sour wine for his thirst. Psalm 69, 21 says, They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. So after the soldiers had cast lots for his garments, you read there, Jesus made arrangements for his mother to be cared for after his death. Again, this is a little bit of an aside in my message this morning, but a precious detail shared here. Again, presumably by, well, certainly shared by John, but presumably he is the uh, disciple whom Jesus loved. That's almost universally what scholars uh, acknowledge about his references to that individual Throughout his gospel, John says later here, he clearly says he's an eyewitness. He witnessed what's going on here. But he identifies himself in this scene and where Jesus says to his mother, behold your son. He's really talking about John. He's getting, Jesus is getting ready to die. John will become as her son. Mary will become to him as his mother and take her into his home. That he makes, he makes arrangements for his mother, even there he's, as he's hanging on the cross. And again, as she watches, it's, it is hard for me to imagine doing that, watching. It's hard for me to imagine even wanting that to happen. If you were the one being executed, getting ready to be beheaded, wouldn't you want your loved ones not to be there to have to see that? I mean, that is a, it's a gut-wrenching thought, but again, a little bit of a, an aside. But, but Jesus had made those arrangements, and then when he said, he, he realized all was finished, he said, I thirst. And it says there uh, in verses 28 and 29, a, a jar full of of sour wine stood there and they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. So there's cheap wine here. Sour wine is uh, more like wine vinegar, as I've read about, with may maybe diluted a bit with water, but it was, they made it 
It was cheap wine. I mean, they're like the stuff you would buy at the convenience store, you know, for, for real cheap that would just serve its purpose um, for the person who, you know, I, I don't need to go into the details, you know. But cheap wine that would it, soldiers or other poor people would have, would have drunk or whatever, but more like vinegar, but it's set there for the purpose of a giving to these people being crucified when they got thirsty as they hung there for hours and grew thirsty. And so there'd be just a sponge that could soak that up and it could be extended up onto the cross for the person to get just a little bit to begin to hint at quenching their thirst. So that was prophesied. That was, uh, came right out of the Psalms that Jesus drank sour wine for his thirst. That provision worked out as part of God's plan here on the cross. Number three, we're told that none of his bones were broken. This is almost certainly a reference to the Passover lamb. We read in Exodus 12, verse 46. I think there's a similar reference in Leviticus. But he's talking about the way the Passover is to be eaten on that first Passover and then how it's to be commemorated after that. But among the things it says is that the Passover lamb shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house and you shall not break any of its bones. Part of what was just ordered about the way the Passover would would take place is that when the Passover lamb was slain, its, its bones were not to be broken. And Christ, the Lamb of God, was sacrificed on the Passover as a Passover lamb, and his legs were not broken here. This is a, a, an extraordinary fulfillment of a prophecy here. That again, as he, uh, as he began his ministry, and John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here he is on the cross, the Lamb of God, whose legs were not broken. Now again, you've got soldiers who don't have any idea they are working out God's plan and fulfilling prophecy in that way. Now what what happened here, you may be familiar with this, but uh, the Jews would would ask for those that they did in this occasion, ask for those who had been, been crucified to have their legs broken to hasten their death. As this was uh, the day before the Sabbath, the day of preparation as uh, it's called, and we see written there, so that they wouldn't be hanging on the cross still on the Sabbath. They wanted to hasten their death along. And uh, somebody being crucified is just a, a survival instinct as they as the weight began to sink down on their diaphragm and and essentially suffocate them under their own weight, they would push up on their legs just to try to extend their diaphragm enough to catch their breath. That would be one of those things. Even if somebody wanted to die, there would be that survival instinct almost that would just cause them to push up and catch their breath. And so what they would do is break their legs so that they couldn't push up. Gruesome, isn't it? And so they asked 
to do that, to break their legs so they could hasten their death along, they come around and find Jesus is already dead. And again, presumably because they had beat him so badly ahead of time. Uh, he's, he's already uh, died. But again, also not presumably, that was part of God's plan. His legs were not going to be broken. And so they didn't, they didn't break his legs and hence fulfilled that uh, prophecy of him as the Passover lamb. And then fourth, the other uh, prophecy that was fulfilled or scripture that was fulfilled, this one specifically a prophecy out of Zechariah 12.10 was that his side was pierced. Zechariah 12.10 says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one who weeps over a firstborn. When the, Jesus, when the, when the soldier saw Jesus was already dead, he not only didn't break his legs, but he pierced his side with a spear. I mean, maybe just for good measure, just to be sure he's dead. Maybe just for spite. Uh, not really sure. It says blood and water poured out of him. But he was, he was pierced with a spear. In fulfillment, not only of that prophecy from Zechariah 12.10, but we think about, again, Isaiah 53 of the suffering servant, that he was Pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. If you just look, if you zoom out and look at that whole passage in your Bible from John 19, 17 to 42 that we just read, you'll see most of the substance of that is the background and details that just reveal one after another how Scripture was fulfilled in the way Jesus was crucified. That as awful as it was, as evil as it was, and as accountable as evil men were for the evil they did, they were at the same time fulfilling God's definite plan. And a wonderful plan it was. We sang at the beginning of the service... Um, when I survey the wondrous cross. The wondrous cross. Where that one line says, did e'er such love and sorrow meet? Or thorns compose so rich a crown? See, he, he got it. <laughs> he got it. That the cross is as ugly and awful as it sounds. Really even worse than we can imagine. As most of you know, uh, the, the word excruciating to describe pain uh, comes from Latin words excrucis out of the, uh, from the cross or out of the cross. That word, in other words, was, was invented to say a pain that's cross-like because it's worse than any kind of pain we could really fathom. The wondrous cross, though, 
as terrible as it was, ter as terrible a plan as it was on the part of Jewish leaders and Roman authorities, it was wonderful on God's part, although the means by which that would be worked out were truly terrible. It, it is awful and gruesome and humiliating and horrific beyond imagination. But all working out God's perfect plan. And one of the um, implications of that for all of us is simply that our struggles and sufferings aren't outside of God's plan. They don't lie outside of God's plan. He's, he's never kind of up in the war room trying to figure out, you know, like Apollo 13, okay, what do we do now? What have we got on board we can work with there? He's never in that position. Our struggles aren't outside of his plans. And what's harder to accept is that they could even be part of God's plan. I say that's hard, harder to accept. I, I don't think it was hard to accept for Christians in the first few centuries of the church. In fact, I'm quite sure it was not hard for them to accept by their own testimony. They expected suffering to be part of what following Christ entailed. That was, that was just what they expected to be made like him in his sufferings. Do you remember that passage from Philippians 3.10? Paul says part of what he's hoping for, striving for, is that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And when we look up close to the nature of his death, that's a sobering statement, isn't it? That I would long to be made like him in his death, share in his sufferings. Because Paul understood how glorious uh, Jesus was made in his resurrection through suffering. And how glorious the Christian will be made as well. As he said in 2 Corinthians 1.5, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. I would acknowledge as readily as any of you would, that I don't pray for suffering. In fact, I pray for blessing. I pray for uh, abundance, goodness, wellness, provision, right? All of those kind of things we want for ourselves and we want for others. But we ought to pray that God would give us a perspective such that when suffering comes our way, we might see how it is preparing for us an even greater weight of glory because we share in, we have the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ. 
and have the privilege of being made like him in his death. Let's pray together. Lord, as central as the message of the cross is, it is always sobering to read. It's hard to meditate on, just on a human level. We thank you for what you secured for everyone who believes in Jesus. Through the punishment, the shame and humiliation, the pain, the suffering of that cross. And Lord, we do pray that you would give us fresh perspective on our own struggles and sufferings that come with living life on this earth. God, we're aware, in fact, that maybe much of our depression and anxiety comes from expecting the world to deliver more than the world ever promises to deliver in the way of happiness and blessing and wellness and freedom from adversity. That, Lord, we may have been so blessed that our expectations just become fantastic even, unrealistic about what this world has to offer. Lord, would you give us a proper perspective on the hardships of this, of this life, Lord, that we might see in them your plan being worked out. It all working together according to the counsels of your will and the, the good of those who are called according to your purpose. And Lord, we pray that you be glorified in our lives knowing that through Jesus and entirely by your grace, you've made for provision for us to be glorified in our death and in our resurrection. And God, I pray again, that for those who have lived long in a season or maybe even a lifetime of suffering and struggle and hardship, would you show yourself to be glorious in the midst of it and show just a glimpse of how you're working good through it. Reveal that to them and to those who love them and live near to the suffering, watching them, enduring it. Be gracious and be glorified in Christ's name. Amen.